All right. Welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today we have Halson. Welcome, Halson. Thanks for having me, James. Glad to be on the podcast. No, thanks for coming on. So if anyone's been listening to the podcast for a while, we've had a couple of Ethos Performance guys on. So we had Mayor Orney. He was on quite a few podcasts ago. And then we ended up having Jordan Sullivan as well. Well, we're not, well he's not employed by Ethos. He works with a lot of the Ethos uh, guys here in terms of their nutrition. And now we have Halston, who is the sports scientist there. So maybe, Halston, do you want to dive into a little bit of your background? And then we're going to dive into a lot of different, I guess, actionable stats for for the fighters listening. Yeah, very good. So, yeah, my background, I guess I started in rugby league. So I did um, some work with the Cronulla Sharks. Um, started my internship there, learned from sports scientist John Davey, um, who's still working there at the moment. And, yeah, he pretty much taught me a lot about how to manipulate data, um, analyze data, all that kind of stuff. Eventually, I got a role there with the academy sports science um, as academy sports scientist. Um, unfortunately, COVID had a big impact on that. So then I sort of um, lost my job, um, which then led me to Ethos. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a no, pretty I lost my job fantasy. too, so it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not that common. Um, yeah, so basically, uh, yeah, I did an internship at Ethos as well. Um, so the in- internship program here was, was really good too. Um, and then at the time, Mir just opened up his gym and he just constantly needed a sports scientist on board. Um, and I've always sort of wanted a job where I could have a bit of both like coaching. I still coach regularly on the floor, um, but I also work um, behind the scenes with the sports science stuff. So um, yeah, it was sort of like a perfect role for me. And yeah, combat sports is like, I was involved in it a little bit when I was younger. I did some Muay Thai and stuff, but wasn't, um, I haven't had any fights or anything, but I just did it for like a bit of fitness. Um, but, um, over the last couple of years, I've definitely dived a lot deeper, um, within the combat sports stuff. Um, so yeah, here I am now employed full-time as both a, um, sports scientist and chef conditioning coach. Dude, that's awesome, man. It's, it's not very common to have full-time sports science guys in private, I guess, settings in terms of strength conditioning, which is, it's always good to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's um, really different in terms of um, what I experienced in, in the team sporting environment. Um, and yeah, I feel like I have a lot more flexibility as well now with, with my work, um, which is always a bonus in the private yeah. sector. So, oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. All right. So I want to dive into a little bit of your, I guess, your sports science data. And for anyone listening, some of this might sound a little scientific, but we're going to break it right down to essentially being actionable for you guys listening as well. So a lot of your data is correlational, at least the stuff you send me, you might want to go into other stuff if you have it. But firstly, you've, you've kind of correlated, I guess, different tests together and you've correlated um, tests by, I guess, the martial art and also tests potentially by level. But do you want to maybe start with a general overview of what a correlation actually is and what kind of, I guess, what information that gives you as a practitioner to have correlations between whether that's uh, levels of fighters or tests and, and anything like that. Yeah. So I'll try and break it down in simplest terms, but basically a correlation, you could see it as like a bit of a relationship between two things or variables in more scientific terms. Um, and basically we're looking at different trends. So for example, um, I think one of the things I sent you was looking at um, the correlation between the counter movement jump and a trap bar deadlift 3RM, uh, for example. Um, so 
what we found there is um, there's a bit of a positive correlation between uh, the counter movement jump, the jump height itself, and also how much the athlete um, can lift on a 3RM test. Um, the other tests, to be honest, have fairly weak correlations. Um, I think it's in terms of the specificity of the position, um, probably just doesn't translate well to um, the sort of key big or traditional big lifts. Um, but yeah, I found, um, I've been doing a bit more of diving into the data um, in terms of like looking at some other metrics. Um, one thing that I've been looking at recently is looking at um, some momentum based stuff. Um, I know um, bringing some research around mm, um, nice. in rugby. Um, so I think in terms of like, obviously your lighter weight classes um, are going to have more of a speed characteristics. So they're going to generally achieve um, higher jump heights um, compared to someone like, you know, Bam Bam Tuivasa, who's um, obviously a lot heavier in weight, um, but actually has um, quite good um, momentum um, figures. So, um, and momentum is basically like, I guess if you think about, for example, in, in a takedown in MMA, um, how much or the, I guess, you're countering the object's resistance. So um, you want to be able to have the maximum momentum to be able to carry through your takedown in order to finish the takedown and take the person to the ground. So um, yeah, there's a lot of different metrics that uh, we can talk about further, I guess. Perfect. Uh, we'll come back to momentum, but we'll start with what you mentioned in the beginning, which was the positive correlation between essentially your vertical jump and your trap bar deadlift three rep max. So what does that mean for someone listening that there's a positive correlation uh, between those two lifts? Yep. So basically, um, if it's a positive correlation, it means the higher that you can jump, um, the, generally, we find that the higher numbers of the 3RM um, that you can achieve in the trap bar deadlift. Um, so that's, yeah, that's pretty much what it means there. So, so if I was, I'm not saying I go, okay, so if I can jump higher, then I can trap bar, essentially I can trap bar deadlift more weight and vice versa. Like if I trap bar deadlift more weight, I'm probably going to jump higher. How does that? Uh, I guess, factor into your programming or influence your programming for, uh, I guess, combat sports? Yeah. So with the, I guess, the counter movement jump, we look at, um, well, one of the main two metrics we look at, we look at the contraction time. So the time to take off. So basically how long um, you're taking to jump and also the, the jump height itself. Yeah. Um, so if the athlete is, I guess, taking a long time to jump, um, then we tend to have more of a like velocity uh, based focus for the athlete. So they'll tend to lift at higher velocities. Um, but then we also use things like the isometric midfire pull, which is another, um, I guess, test for mm. strength, maximal force output, and also, um, I guess, how fast the athlete can produce the force. So we look at another metric, which is um, force at 200 milliseconds um, and you think about that that's like less than a second so it's basically mm -hmm. the force you can produce um, in a very short period of time and then we look at a percentage of um, the force at 200 milliseconds compared to um, their maximal force um, and we like to see that at about 50 percent um, gotcha. but in terms of the i guess the imtp we, we tend to um, look at that more as like more of a strength focus um, so 
I guess, yeah, if the athlete is yeah. achieving um, slightly below average or um, well below average, then obviously um, those guys tend sometimes tend to be beginner sort of combat guys. Um, and then they get more of like a force uh, dominant focus. So they'll tend to lift a little bit heavier in the gym um, and yeah, focus on those um, more traditional lifts first before progressing to um, obviously higher velocity lifts closer to their fight camp. Is there a way maybe for people listening that, that don't have access to say force plates um, and things like that to do any of this testing that they can kind of figure out where on the spectrum they should most likely train to improve power outputs within MMA or other combat sports? Yeah. So um, I think this comes back to some of the findings that we have um, with our data. So uh, we, we tend to find that, um, so what we do at EFOS is uh, because we, we technically don't have enough athletes to sort of divide um, our data by like weight classes and um, sport specific, because like, for example, um, a wrestler cohort might only have, you know, we've got some pretty high level wrestlers here who compete internationally, but we only have five of them. So the sample size isn't really too great. So I've sort of um, combined like different disciplines of combat sports together. So that's why I've got things like um, grappling as one category, MMA as another, and striking base sports. Um, obviously, it's not ideal, but I think it, it sort of fits what um, our context is. Um, and basically, so for example, for a grappler, we found that um, their, uh, their peak net force output um, is significantly greater than, say, like an MMA fighter um, or uh, a boxer. Now, I think that's um, due to the nature of the sport. Obviously, grappling, it's very technical focus, but at the same time, I think the, the type the contraction types that you see in grappling are sort of like your longer um, duration isometric holds and uh, you know being able to take someone to the ground requires a fair bit of strength as well compared to more you know if you look at it on the other side of the spectrum with, with just striking based sports very uh, velocity or mostly velocity based focus um, and I guess more um, reactive strength um, focus which is another thing we can talk about later in the podcast mm. um, but yeah, so Perfect. back to the question, I guess, yeah, if you if you don't have the um, the resources to sort of test yourself or find resources like us where you can actually come in for testing, um, then, yeah, for grapplers, like if you're already, generally we find the grapplers are already strong. So, um, you know, we might have to um, adapt your training so that you're improving other qualities like um you know, power and things like that. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, maybe you're striking sports, they're already really um, fast and, and reactive already. So uh, we find that, yeah, they're, they're lacking in a bit more of that strength. So, um, you know, that's where in things like your general prep period where you can actually do a little bit more work, um, we can work, we can address those weaknesses. And then um, as we transition um, closer to the fight camp um, or transition closer to the fight, um, we, can, we can make that more back to your strength, which is um, more velocity-based training. Nice. Uh, I want to come back to your momentum calculation too. So yep. I think that's momentum is obviously, as you mentioned, it's making its way now through the research. More people are using it because it obviously gives more insight into, I guess, uh, how someone's moving in terms of speed. Because obviously, as you mentioned, there's weight classes, right? The same thing in rugby. Obviously, you've got big guys in the front row, 120 kilos running X speed, and you've got the backs who are lighter who are always going to be faster. 
but you can't really compare that because of the weight difference. Whereas momentum obviously kind of negates that weight difference and gives you a, a value based on their mass. So I guess from that momentum data, how are you using that to influence your programming? And if someone's listening, how can they figure out whether it's a, say a weight issue or a speed issue in terms of what's going on? Yeah. So with the momentum calculation, it's basically multiplying um, your body weight by how quickly um, you're taking off in the jump. So um, basically, I guess for your, for your heavier weights, um, you know, especially you really need to um, be able to help them maintain their size because um, obviously that's a, that's a big part of, um, of momentum. So, um, yeah, with, with that in mind, I think the training, especially in that, um, so general prep period, that's where you can um, you know, include more like hypertrophy-based exercises to help build some size and, and keep the um, keep that lean uh, tissue mass. Um, and, and then progressively, as they're obviously getting close to the fly camp, um, they might need to cut down a little bit. Um, in terms of, um, I guess, the velocity, again, we use a lot of the um, like velocity-based training um, here at EFA. So, um, yeah, we... We're working um, generally at, at high velocities at the high ends. Um, so uh, we, we might do things like loaded jumps, um, like a loaded counter movement jump on a trap bar, um, you know, generally working at above one meters per second. Um, and lately we've been playing around with um, like peak power as well. So um, on the on the, on the the flex devices, um, so nice. I do like a bit of a um, power profile um, we work up to a weight where they achieve that peak power, which is displayed on the on the device. You get that from um, a figure from the iPad, um, and then we can maximize uh, the the power output um, within those exercises as well. Um, so those are just some of the ways that um, we help athletes or, to actually you know, maintain uh, their size and also to train the the takeoff velocity as well for the jumps. Nice. Nice, nice. So, are you using are you using peak velocity for the for the jumps, and then average velocity for like, I guess like squats and things like that, or do you have like a preference in terms of what um, you like to use? So, sort of at the moment, we're still using mean velocity for for each, um, but I think okay. lately I've just been playing around with um, using peak power, um, and then trying to figure out uh, mm. try to develop a profile for that, um, and then. Uh, work up to a weight that, so I guess they're in their first week, I guess the, the best way to sort of use it would be like in their first week, um, they'd be doing the, uh, the profile. Um, and then the following week they can use those loads to, um, uh, achieve the peak power, um, which was found in, in the previous, uh, in the previous week and then they can continue the program from there. Uh, but basically I guess it makes sense. Like if you're developing power to be training at peak power, so. Nice. So you also mentioned uh, before about the, the, I guess, reactive strength. So are you assessing reactive strength? And then if so, I guess, how are you, how are you training reactive strength that can be used by the people listening? Maybe who don't, I guess, have a lot of the equipment or maybe they're just training at commercial gym or anything like that. Yep. So with reactive strength, we use the 10-5 RSI test. Um, which is basically um, uh, 10 pogo jumps. So the athlete performs 10 pogo jumps. Um, the jumps are performed 
uh, with relatively stiff knees and it's, it's mostly focused um, through, through the ankle. Um, and it's very similar to um, like jumping when, you, when you're skipping. Um, so I guess I always cue the athlete to minimize the time on the ground and to try and bounce up as high as possible. Um, and then from that data, uh, basically it takes the average of the best five out of those 10 jumps. So um, we look at how much time they're spending on the ground and also um, how much time they're spending in the air. And what it's measuring is basically the athlete's uh, stretch shortening cycle capacity. Um, so basically how quickly the athlete um, can transition from, I guess, absorbing force to, to producing force. So obviously in a lot of sports, um, those actions uh, tend to be quite prevalent. Um, even in things like boxing, you know, reactive strength, I guess, is quite important in like change direction and things. So I guess for, for boxing, you know, you have to be able to change direction quickly to evade punches, um, create angles, um, all that kind of stuff. So um, from our data as well, we found that um, the, the RSI figures are definitely elevated in, in the striking populations. I think just due to the nature of the sport, um, they're very like bouncy and springy in nature. If you think about grapplers or I guess MMA, a lot of those guys, even in MMA, they come from a, like a big wrestling background as well. So um, you find that, yeah, they're more, um, uh, you find that the, the values are higher um, in terms of the strength department, but in terms of the RSI, uh, velocity, ta uh, velocity takeoff um, for the CMJ, um, those, th those values are definitely elevated in the, in the um, striking population. In terms of how um, people can train it, um, so to be honest, we, we use a lot of um, plyometric training. I know a lot of fighters are jumping on like powerlifting programs or like bodybuilding programs. Um, and yeah, even some, a lot of the, obviously the information is getting a lot better for combat sports, but yeah, even a lot of our guys who are coming in, um, you know, they, they had very little experience with um, plyometrics, just doing simple things like a, like a counter movement jump or a squat jump. They, they actually tend to um, struggle with it quite a bit. Um, so that's where like, you know, our coaching comes into things, but ultimately, yeah, we're looking at, um, if you were looking to build some, um, reactive strength qualities, then definitely, um, including things like, um, uh, plyometrics, uh, can be useful, um, for the athlete. Now, obviously, um, we need to keep in mind as well, that the time of the, the, I guess the competitive period, um, for the combat athlete. Um, so for example, in our, in our general prep period, we use a lot of extensive based plyometrics, um, just generally to build, um, you know, capacity through, um, the, the connective tissues, like the tendons and ligaments, um, and also, uh, just to prepare them for more intensive blocks. Um, we have like a very, I guess, uh, progression based system here at AFOS as well. So for using like some extensive based exercises where they can get, um, you know, countless amounts of reps in, um, we can use progressions and make that more, um, I guess, intensive in nature, um, later on in their program, um, by just adjusting like little subtle things, such as using like a band resisted variation or a band assisted variation. Um, so yeah, those are just some, some ways that, mm. uh, you can develop reactive strength. Nice. And your, and your experience then, because obviously from the profiles or the data you've collected, you see say grapplers because of the nature of the sport, they tend to be stronger. They don't have that much of that reactive strength. Do you still 
find that it's useful to still develop that quality, say maybe a jiu-jitsu person listening, even though the sport doesn't require or have that requirement, I guess, within it, unless maybe you're playing a more wrestling dominant style jiu-jitsu kind of thing? Yeah. I think it's ultimately like for me, I still like training um, a lot of the different physical qualities. Um, like I like including them in like different components in, in every program. Um, but in terms of like the amount that you need to do, I'd say um, yeah, for, for a jiu-jitsu athlete, it's probably not as necessary to have, you know, it, it'd be a bonus to have good reactive strength, but at the same time, it's, yeah, it's like, um, I guess ultimately, like, yeah, it might make you a better athlete, uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the whole concept of like, um, yeah, the, the fact that Jiu-Jitsu is very technically focused as well. Um, yeah, I guess the technique is you look at, um, I think yeah. was, uh, uh, John Danaher, obviously, like, I think he talked about on uh, the Let's Freeman podcast, he was saying like, um, when you look at like the podium finish of like a, a major Jiu-Jitsu competition, like they're, they're all different sizes. So it's like one of those sports where like, um, I guess how athletic you are or, how um, how big you are it, it all comes down to like the technique itself and how skilled it's like one of the most skilled dominant sports there is um but yeah i'd say some like we've had juice athletes yeah. we do include components of like reactive strength but i guess they're they're more focused um uh, rather like with the plyometric stuff um i guess you can categorize it with like i guess your shorter contact um plyometrics and your longer contact plyometrics so i guess your your shorter duration uh, plyometrics are get they're more like more ten, tendon focused um, using that elastic energy from the tendon, whereas I guess your longer um, mm. plyometric work they're more mus- muscular focused. So um, I guess in terms of uh, the, the grappling uh, side of things, I think using some of the long, more uh, longer duration based plyometrics would be useful because there's a bit of that um, that uh, muscular contribution as well. So you can develop um, your ability to producing large amounts or large quantities of force um, over over a constrained period of time. Nice. Uh, we actually well, I haven't had a, a many, I guess, coaches come on that work with jiu-jitsu athletes, but I guess mainly because boxing and MMA stuff's professional, so there's money in that, money to spend on coaches and stuff. Obviously, jiu-jitsu isn't, uh, I guess, professional as such even though obviously you've got some of the guys at the top making a lot of money but it's not professional like like some of the other combat sports so it'll be actually good that you maybe dive into a little bit of maybe how you design i guess strength training programs for the jiu-jitsu athlete um again, i know it's a very general question but maybe if you want to cover just some a general overview of how a training program would look maybe um for a normal jiu-jitsu schedule, like training schedule, and then maybe as they're leading towards a competition, how maybe that might change. So, yeah, with, with our programming here, um, I guess for me, uh, with our general prep phase, it's yeah really like capacity focused. Um, so uh, with our resistance training side of things, um, we, we tend to include like, you know, things like higher volumes, just to develop, um, you know, good muscle mass. Um, obviously that, that's, I guess important in jiu-jitsu as well. Um, general strength, um, you need to have that good baseline strength. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, including things like uh, some general power work as well. So Olympic lifting derivatives uh, are useful, I find. Um, just like a, a hang clean shrug or like a, again, like I said before, like a loaded jump. Those, those kinds of things are, are really useful. Um, it, it, 
I guess, in, in general prep periods where you can sort of, um, those exercises, uh, I guess, aren't really like complex in nature. Um, and then as they transition closer to competitions, um, we might make some of those contraction types a little bit more specific. So, and, and positions as well. So we use, we utilize a lot of um, like staggered stance work. So you think about, um, you know, a juice athlete, um, especially when they're in stand-up, mm. for example, um, they're in that staggered stance position, ready to take the opponent down. Um, so we use a lot of things like, you know, hand-supported um, safety bar split squats is, is a great way to sort of train, I guess, you know, uh, maximal strength in a staggered stance position. Um, and you can, you can pretty much doing like a full body exercise well because you, you're sort of using your arms as well to help you up and you can really load it up and it also eliminates the stability factor too. So we use a lot of that. Um, we do a lot of stagger stance work with, with jumping as well um, to build the power in, in those positions. Um, mm, in terms nice. of some of the strength work, we, we tend to, we like to transition it more to like, I guess your um, long, longer isometric holds upwards of like 10 to 20 seconds, um, training that ability to be able to, um, you know, grip and hold things. Um, you know, for example, we even like doing things like a, a gi chin up. Um, we have a gi here at the gym. We, we chuck it on the, on the bar and they're working on, um, you know, they, they grip strength with the gi, um, whilst doing like a strength exercise. Um, so nice. that, in terms of resistance training, that's, that's sort of, um, how we cover it. And then obviously in terms of some of the accessory work, um, we find, you know, I, I guess having good groin strength is, is quite important as well. Um, so there's always, there always tends to be a thread of, um, like just mm. groin accessory work. Um, and yeah, that's definitely found in, um, some of our force frame data as well. Um, we look at the, um, adduction and adduction strength. We find, yeah, juice athletes have a, about a 1.14 ratio. So that means they're significantly stronger with their, um, groin squeeze. So squeezing in, um, then, then pushing out abduction, mm. um, so yeah, we tend to include that as an area of robustness. Um, also just some like general elbow, elbow work, like tricep stuff is, I think it's useful, um, especially if getting caught in like arm bars and things. I think having that, um, you know, good, good arm, uh, elbow strength is, is really important. Um, and also, uh, like a lot of unilateral work as well. Um, just to, um, ensure that. You know, the athlete minimizes the chance of uh, injury and things like, um, you know, submissions from, from like the lower body as well. Um, and then in terms of the uh, conditioning side of things, so um, again, just a pretty, I guess, traditional mm. progression. So uh, like for me, I like developing that aerobic base um, further out from, from competition. And then as we get closer towards the competitions, um, we tend to transition it more to, yeah, anaerobic energy systems. Um, we'll do things like, um, you know, doing a, a, a short sprint on a on a watt bike or a salt bike, and then they transition into some uh, rest work. But with that rest work, they make it specific to their sport. So we do a lot of like shadow grappling or shadow wrestling within those rest breaks as well. And then they'll interchange between oh, those two activities. <laughs> so they'll go for, for example, like a 10 second sprint into um, just some shadow grappling work where they can really visualize um, what they want to do in the lead up to the competitions. And they can work on um, little techniques and things that um, they, they're, they're looking to improve uh, on for, for their competition as well. Um, in saying that, a lot of the times, especially with our um, amateur grappling guys, um, and same with our, our amateur boxers, uh, you, you tend to find that they're competing quite regularly as well. So that's also um, a big consideration. Um, which is why sometimes this periodization, like what I've described at the moment, 
is like a, uh, I guess, a periodization model that we use for some of the higher level grapplers, um, where they might be, have, they might have a big event or a big competition, and we have that time to sort of plan it out. But sometimes um, you've got amateur boxers or amateur grapplers who are competing like uh, almost every week. So for me, in that instance, that's where the programming changes. And I like to use like a um, vertical integration approach where, you know, I'm including uh, little, little doses um, of, you know, like your strength, power, speed work, um, little doses of conditioning as well within the week. Um, and then generally for those athletes, they're, they're pretty consistent in the gym. So um, you'll find that if they're training for the whole year, um, they can gradually build those qualities over a longer period of time. Um, and I guess, yeah, another consideration as well is yeah. um, also how, um, I guess, how they pull up from those competitions as well. So we have some guys who um, do jiu-jitsu competitions. They, they have, you know, upwards of six to seven matches, which is, which is crazy um, in, in one day. So, um, yeah, the, the next week might have to be a significant, like, deload week as well. So there's a lot of considerations around training the amateur guys as, yeah. well, um, as well. Like it's not always like the sort of um, a lot of the time, uh, I guess in, in the on the internet and stuff they have all those periodization models, but it tends to be um, for like the the real high level professional <laughs> fighters where you can have you know like your general prep, specific prep, fight camp period. But a lot of the time with the amateur guys, um, yeah. which pretty much makes up the majority of the combat sport population. Um, yeah, they're, they're competing quite regularly, so. Um, that, that mm -hmm. makes my um, job as a training industry coach uh, very interesting as well because I have to adapt. I'm always adapting programs on the fly. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that, that bit about the amateur flyers with the week schedule. But first, obviously, you mentioned about the like the what bike sprint and then like the shadow wrestling. There's actually a good paper that was published. I think it was this month or last month. And they did jump squats, loaded jump squats paired with like low level jujitsu drills. And they found it was basically the physiological response was similar to a sparring session, but a high neuromuscular load. So obviously you're getting a little bit of that peak power stuff in there too. Yeah, right. that, that, that's interesting that you guys are basically doing that anyway, doing yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. And then you also mentioned about the groin squeeze, the groin squeeze and the uh, hip external rotation. So you obviously you mentioned you have a ratio there. Do you have a ratio that uh, I guess you guys are aiming to be at, or you've found maybe as best regarding, I guess, reducing the risk of injury? And do you do anything, I guess, for external rotation and because it is, um, I guess, because the ratios are so close? Yeah, so um, with, with the ratios, uh, we tend, yeah, like I said before, we tend to find that, um, you know, juicy guys are very, like, uh, adductor focused as well. So um, at the same time, they also need to train um, sort of the adduction as well. So we use things like, you know, reverse Copenhagen's as well uh, with the training, so the outside of the leg. Um, unfortunately, some, one machine that I would like to have here as well would be like, um, just a standard, like, uh, abduction, abduction machine. I think that'd be quite useful, um, just to train like general strength, um, in terms of like, good yeah. girl, bad girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause I, yeah, obviously, uh, <laughs> I've recently been to Europe and, um, yeah, I had all these machines that, um, I don't really, we don't usually have here. And I was, uh, experimenting, um, before, you know, I was expecting like the sort of the glute extension machine. Um, yeah, keeps different machines. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the adduction adduction one was a was quite a nice one, uh, but I think it'd be useful just to develop some general strength for um, both the adductors and and the abductors. Mm. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think a lot of the time, yeah, uh, we use a lot of reverse Copenhagen progressions um, to train uh, sort of the abduction work as well. 
Um, and then also like some, uh, sometimes we use like uh, banded work with um, just a simple like layer reductions as well. Um, that can be quite useful um, for, for that. Uh, but in terms of the, the okay. ideal ratios, um, yeah, I think having a good balance, like a, a ratio of one means that you sort of equal. Um, so I think jujitsu, I think it's important to have a little bit stronger for, for your groins. I think it's, it's necessary but just be a little bit more specific, but, um, and even in MMA, um, in, in striking a lot of the time, it's more like internal rotation, um, stress through the, through the groin. Um, so I guess some ways you can, uh, work on, on that specific, um, quality, um, would be doing, um, we've been playing around with some like single leg RDL variations with like some rotation. Um, we find that that helps, um, sort of bias yeah. that, um, internal rotation of the hip. And also uh, get some loaded strength at the same time. Um, and same thing with split squats as well. So split squats, if you um, do a split squat and you rotate towards that front leg at the same time, um, we tend to find that that's, that's sort of pretty similar to um, if you when you throw a strike, you find that um, if you're if you're an orthodox um, fighter, um, you find that you know if you're throwing a, a, a right cross, you find that there's a bit of uh, stress for the groin. That's sort of what we're, what we're training there as well. Um, developing the sort of endurance and, and uh, capacity to be able to handle those kinds of contractions. Um, some of the other work I've been doing on the nice. horse um, Yeah, so uh, we also have done, we, we've been our testing battery, we like testing some shoulder rotation strength, um, so external and internal rotation. Um, and sort of an interesting thing that I found um, with it was um, the fact that so the majority of fighters are, are orthodox, um, and we found that like the the left sided um, values for both external and internal rotation um, are significantly weaker than uh, than the the right sided. Um, so I guess that that was an interesting sort of thing that I found. I think it's um, a lot of the time potentially maybe the, te the the fighters coming in a little bit fatigued. Um, so, so this is, um, I'm talking about strikers and sort of MMA athletes who do some kind of striking. Um, so potentially, um, yeah, yeah they, they're coming in, they're, they're obviously throwing out that jab quite a bit. So, uh, obviously the, there's some, some high stress is going through, uh, the, the shoulder joint there. So potentially that's potentially a reason why, um, some of those values are decreased on the, on the left side compared to the right. Um, but I'll probably have to dive into a little bit deeper, but that's sort of a thing, interesting thing that I found. Um, with that, yeah. and um, also with um, neck strength, we do we do some neck strength testing as well. Um, obviously, that's that's a pretty important component of most combat oh, yeah. sports. Um, yeah, neck, good neck strength has been shown to reduce the likelihood of concussions um, in striking based sports. Uh, obviously, in grappling, you know, you're getting um, people having their arm around you trying to choke you out, and obviously, those torsional forces there um, are, are very high as well. So having um, good neck strength is super important and I like to profile that as well. Um, so I usually compare that to, um, their, their body weight. Um, and in terms of some of the interesting things that I found with that. So again, uh, grappling and MMA fighters tend to have the strongest necks. Um, and then you find that, uh, the next, yeah, the, the strikers tend to have weaker necks compared to those guys. But I think that's again, due to the nature of the sport, I think. In terms of like wrestling, they're always, um, you know, pushing or pu applying head pressure on the chest or 
um, on the shoulder to keep the opponent down or to, to secure yeah. the relationship. So I think that's um, um, the, the potentially the reason why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. If, if you go back and listen to the podcast with Gary Turner, so his research group is, is essentially uh, disputing the fact that neck strength reduces the risk of concussion. And it's really interesting the way he explains it on there and kind of the, the theory behind it, the research they're doing. Because it may be like, oh, shit, so all this research now, that's well, the few papers that have come out now kind of with these observational, almost like retrospective studies, kind of just gathering da- uh, subjective feedback and then comparing it to next strength and then saying, okay, it reduces concussion because these, these people didn't have it. So he's saying like a lot of the uh, data, a lot of the papers being published are almost uh, cherry-picked within those journals. And then his theory is actually the same with Seth Linetsky, who's who's done a lot of the boxing punch research as well. They actually have the same theory on this and they haven't talked to each other, which is quite interesting. And that's how essentially if you have a stronger neck and you get hit, obviously you reduce the decel or you reduce the deceleration of the head, but that means all the force goes through the brain instead of if your head moves, it kind of dissipates around the head. So it doesn't all go through the brain, which I think is pretty interesting. And that's Seth was telling me the other day that that's his theory of why you see more knockouts in the heavyweight division, because mass doesn't equal more force and more impact force on punches. But the fact that you're bigger, so you generally have a bigger head and a bigger neck, the head doesn't move as much when you get hit. So his theory is with heavyweights, they get knocked out because the head and neck kind of stops the head moving and the brain takes most of the impact, which man, it's, it's interesting stuff. Like I'm just, I'm just waiting. Hopefully some more research comes out on it, but it's also, it's always awesome and interesting to hear kind of both sides of that, that area yeah. of, Hey, is, is next strength? Like, are we doing a, a good thing or a bad thing making, you know, strikers neck stronger or, you know, it's, we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I've, all the research I've basically yeah. read is yeah, looking at the um, reductions in risk of concussion. But yeah, it's always good to keep up to date with the research. I'll yep. definitely have to dive yep. into Same that. Here. Um, yeah, yeah, it's um, that, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll I'll link to that podcast anyway. But I want to come back to the amateur jujitsu guys. So you mentioned guys that maybe are competing often. There might be some people listening to this. How does your week look then for someone who competes, I guess, often? And maybe you want to define what often is with your uh, what you have there. But let's maybe look at, okay, they've just competed. They've done seven matches. What that deload week might look like if, if anything's going on at all. And then what kind of like a normal training week uh, looks like when they're competing often. Yeah. So when they're competing often, um, the first thing that's really important is, um, you know, communication between myself and the athlete to really keep myself updated on um, actually what's going on um, with their week and also how they're preparing. Um, so, the in terms of the programming itself, um, within those uh, I guess training uh, weeks, sometimes if it's a competition that they've just signed up to like a week before, um, then. The, I guess the training doesn't really change that much because it's just they just wanted to get a few rounds in, competitive rounds in. But for some of your more major competitions, right, yeah. um, I guess the then the, the week changes a little bit. So we, we tend to prime them up a little bit more. So we have like things like primer weeks where they're just completing um, mostly explosive-based exercises 
Um, and, and the sessions are pretty short in nature. They probably take like half an hour, 40 minutes max, and they'll only complete like two sort of resistance training sessions during the week, and they won't complete any conditioning. Um, that's, that's if they have a lot of matches lined up for, for that particular weekend. Um, let's say they've come back from a weekend where um, they've had a lot of matches, then uh, we do like a sort of a regen program. Um, and then we find that, uh, so with the, with the programming of, for the regen program, uh, it tends to be, I guess, yeah, really uh, low, low intensity nature, um, low load as well, um, just because they're, they're going to be like pretty sore and banged up from if they're competing in that many matches. Um, so their, their lifting is, is generally quite easy during that week. Um, and in terms of the, the structuring of the week, in terms of their technical training, so they'll generally do their harder sessions um, earlier in the week, and then they'll taper it off um, towards competition. Um, they'll do like, those competitions, uh, those sessions um, just before the competition. Um, they'll tend to keep those, uh, I guess, higher, higher intensity, but shorter in duration. Um, again, the whole sort of um, concept of, of priming uh, the athlete uh, for the competition. So um, keeping intensity high, but just lowering the volume um, to ensure that they feel like sharp and ready to go. Yeah, no, that's, that makes sense as well, obviously with the priming as well. And I guess jujitsu athletes, I guess most combat athletes uh, train probably more times a week than most other sports. Um, especially at, at the amateur level, like you'll have guys in the gym, you know, four to six times a week, if not more, depending if they're doing double days or not, going to go do jujitsu. So then how are you balancing, I guess, what's happening in the gym with with the amount of, I guess, hours and days these guys are training on top of them having to work as well? Is, is there maybe like a little, I guess, formula, some kind of guidelines that people can kind of follow to help them with that? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess a lot of the time um, when some of our guys come into our gym, they, they want to train like they want to train strength training like four or five times a week plus their technical training, um, which I guess, <laughs> yeah, it's the whole mindset of the combat athlete, right? They just want to work harder than yeah. their opponents. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. at the same time, I think um, when you explain to them like, yeah, strength training is sort of like a supplement, like, yeah, it might, it, it would improve their physical performance, but you don't really need you actually don't really need that much to actually get the benefits from it. Um, and yeah, I think it's like, a, they always go, it's sort of like a realization moment for them where they go like, oh yeah, that, like, that sort of makes sense. Like I tell them, you know, you only maximum, like most of the guys here, they're only really doing like twice a week strength training and the sessions only go for about an hour. They'll complete like a main lift, a couple of main lifts and then they'll go into some accessory work. Um, and yeah, that usually takes about an hour. Um, so yeah, keeping it within like three to four sets is, is generally reasonable for someone training, um, you know, two times a week for strength. Um, I think you can get some good benefits with that, provided they're, um, they're training with the right loadings and right, um, right intensities and things. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of how I control. Like obviously, a lot of the time as well, like with the fighters, um, a lot of them actually here in Australia, um, a lot of them work in in the trades, so they would do like carpentry or. Um, air conditioning, roofing, all that kind of stuff. So they're already working like pretty um, intensive jobs as well. Um, so sometimes they're coming in at like 5 a.m. in the morning yeah. and they barely have gotten any sleep as well. Like I've had guys who come in and be like, they've done night shifts, for example, 
and they've come in and said like, how suck? I've already had three hours sleep. <laughs> I'm like, I think like in those instances, I've just told them to go home, like <laughs> go get some sleep. Cause like the, the training yeah. you're going to get today is probably not going to be worthwhile. You know what I mean? So, um, and we have the other side of the spectrum where they're coming in after a hard day of work, yeah. at six, 7 PM at night. And they, they want to do a training session as well. So, um, a lot of the times that's why having like a coach, especially for like, if you're, um, a combat athlete as well, having a coach, have a training coach like that, who can, um, talk to you about these things and, um, you know, modify things on the fly. So, uh, it's super important because if you're just doing these things by yourself, um, you know, you might potentially think that you can do it and then you end up overshooting it and you're just going to be like completely sore and banged up for your technical training. So, um, I think that's, that's sort of the, if you yeah. have the access to a coach, I think that's, that's sort of where the value is. Um, obviously the coaching as well, but I think a lot of the time it has to do with the, the loading too. Like, um, you know, if you're doing it by yourself, a lot of the time you can, you can really go stupid with some of the exercises and really overshoot it. Whereas in this environment, we're always keeping an eye out. We're always talking to athletes, subjectively checking in, um, just to see how they're feeling and, um, see whether they can actually complete, um, some of the things that have been planned for them, um, as well. So, but yeah, the whole thing of like, you know, there's always a plan, but at the same time, the, the plan, it, it's, it's just there as a structure. It's not really like a, a set structure. Like you, you always have to modify things, um, in, in this yeah. sort of context. Yeah. Have you found there's a difference or you need to modify things like from my, from my personal experience, I can lift before jujitsu. <clears throat> doesn't matter. I can lift like directly before jujitsu. And then I'm like, it feels me like on the mats. I feel really good. But if I train you to say midday or late morning, and then I go lift in the evening, man, I feel absolutely fucked. And doesn't yeah. like my knees are like sore trying to do things. I'm like, man, like lifting after like doing morning jiu-jitsu sucks. So is there maybe, I'm sure you have guys that maybe do maybe morning jiu-jitsu or midday jiu-jitsu and they have to come in the evening or I don't work a physical labor job. So maybe, they, maybe these guys are just used to it. Um, but I guess, have you had to, play around and modify things in that instance. And if not, is there maybe recommendations you would have for people listening that do maybe have to train jujitsu in the morning and then waits later in the evening? Yeah. Look, yeah, it, it is a tough one. I think, yeah, you got to keep in mind the, the work schedules of people. <clears throat> um, a lot of the guys are students as well. They got um, really big study schedules, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, obviously the schedule you described is probably what I term like an optimal schedule. Like I've done, I've done that myself where, yeah, I've trained before um, I find that my my resistance training sessions are tend to be a lot better um, before my technical uh, my technical training. I feel like after technical training, like yeah, you've had people all like sweaty people just trying to choke you out or trying to, to trying to bash you up, and you just like you just feel absolutely <laughs> afterwards. Like like lifting it is it, pretty tough. Like it's a it is definitely a, a big mental battle. But I guess yeah, if you like a lot of the guys like they they sort of have to manage their work and their study um, like doing resistance training, doing some kind of resistance training is, um, still doing better than like no resistance training. So again, in those instances, again, you'd have to be, um, yeah. modifying, um, or keeping in mind that what they're doing outside of, of their training here, here at the gym. Um, so yeah, I think that just comes with having a good relationship with the athlete, understanding really, um, you know, what they do outside and, um, yeah. And then, and then modifying it from there. But yeah. yeah, 
for, for those guys. Yeah, I will yeah. say as well, like... Go... So you get... No, I, so I was just going to say quickly that I will say, I think in terms of the the different, I guess, martial arts, you got striking, grappling, MMA, I think grappling is one of the only ones that does really well where you, li- where you can lift first. Obviously, if you're doing some stupid, like, hard, like high volume bodybuilding, like just chest on that day, then yeah, that's going to obviously fuck you up and you shouldn't be running that kind of program anyway. But if you're doing uh, like a well-rounded strength power program, doing that stuff before grappling works really, really well. Whereas with other sports, maybe striking things, depending on the volume you're kind of doing, it doesn't, it doesn't marry up so well as well. So that's something to always keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. I think the, the nature of the sports is like completely different. I think, um, yeah, jujitsu, you can sort of like the, I guess the rounds are way different. Like it's, um, yeah, I guess with, with the, with the striking, like it's very, very much explosive based, um, sort of actions. And then if you're doing like a, um, training mm. session before it, and you're doing like, you know, you, you're, you're maxing out on, on weights and things, and then you're going into that, you're just going to, you're not going to have that same force output, um, as a, um, if you're just going into it fresh, yeah. um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just want to touch on, as it comes to the end of this, that you mentioned you, there are some, there are some physical performance tests that don't correlate well together. Do you want to maybe run through some of those and maybe kind of your take on what that means in terms of training? Yeah. So I think what, like with the, the whole weak correlation thing. Um, so one thing that, uh, like I didn't really, I guess I haven't really used much is the dynamic strength index. Um, and the reason why is because when I first started like investigating it here, um, I, te- I tended to find that like, even though, um, some of the guys who were getting like, um, you know, really low values with isometric midfire pool, for example, um, they were, they were still like lifting quite heavy in the gym. Like they were, they were s- strong athletes. Um, but then the DSI was saying mm. like they needed to work on their strength, which didn't really make sense to me. And then likewise on the opposite side of the spectrum where like, um, the sort of DSI <laughs> was telling me like, this guy needs to work on ballistic strength, but like you look at him you look at them in the gym and they just be like super explosive and like it just, the, the sort of data just didn't really make sense. So I've sort of tended to, um, go away from that. Um, so in terms of like how that's, um, needed, that's like, I guess an example of, of that, like, um, the fact that say something like an isometric midfire pull, it might not, I guess, relate to your strength, uh, lifting your lifting strength. Um, so even though you might have a high isometric midfire pull, I think because some of the stuff that you, the stuff that you're doing in the gym, there's still like a bit of a, I guess a skill element to it. Like there's a skill element to lifting too. So even with the isometric midfire pull, like there's, there's an optimal technique to do it. So if you've never done it before, then potentially that might be a reason why the isometric midfire pull is coming up at a, at a lower value, but you might've had experience lifting in the gym. So your, your, your joint angles and how you're setting up for those exercises are going to be a lot stronger, which therefore means that you're able to, to lift heavier. Um, but based on our data, um, we found, yeah, isometric midfire pull doesn't really carry well to things like a trap bar deadlift or a back squat. Um, and yeah, the same thing with like can movement jump and a back squat as well. doesn't really match up. 
um, with like higher values for one mm. test into um, stronger values for your main lifts. <laughs> That's interesting because most people will say to jump higher, you should squat more. But what you're saying is that the correlation is quite weak. So getting stronger in the squat might not translate that well into jumping higher and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. I think there's um, some research as well on like doing partial rep style squats as well uh, versus full range squats and um, mm. whether or not that, uh, which one is, I guess, more optimal for improving jump height. Um, I think, yeah, there was a study, uh, kind of who uh, was by, but they, they found that, yeah, like the, the group that was doing the, the quarter squats actually um, improved their jumping form significantly than um, the group that was doing the full range uh, full range squats, yeah. which is a really good, really interesting finding as well, um, in terms of like how I guess people can train for, uh, for power, um, in terms of like, I guess with the, uh, if you explain a more like combat sports specific context, I guess that's where, you know, reducing, um, range of motion might be useful, um, as they get close to the fight camp to, to make them feel more explosive. Um, whereas in those earlier periods or out of competition periods, um, that's, that's where I like to include more sort of full range, full range of motion exercises as well. So there's a time and place for each. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure on that. So, does that mean, I guess, because maybe, I guess, can move and jump or the vertical jump is something that you use often for assessments and maybe it's one of, maybe it's one of your KPIs. Does that mean that you lean more towards doing the trap bar deadlift over the squat because of that correlation, or you still kind of use them evenly because, hey, you, you're still looking at maybe the eccentric loading on the squatting, or you want to still have that squat pattern in there? Yeah, for me, I, I still like having the, the squat pattern in there. I feel like the, the trap bar deadlift is like the joint angles, like are more specific to more like hip dominant um, base muscles, um, whereas the squat, you can really make that more knee dominant, especially if you change the positioning of the bar or, or use a different implement, like a safety bar or something. Um, so yeah, I, I still like keeping a thread of, um, like a squat, like a big lower body lift. Um, and also like a general, like a big upper body lift. Um, and then like a velocity based lift as well. I like including, um, those sort of lifts within, uh, a combat athletes program. Um, regardless of their, their testing results. Like obviously the testing results do dictate um, some of the programming, um, but a lot of the time, most combat athletes just need to work on the, on the really basic things, um, like, you know, developing general strength, speed, um, power, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. No, uh, that's good. That's, yeah. I mean, I think most people listening to this would do well with just that advice. Just to most people who have very low training age in the gym, just, get generally stronger in some of the basic lifts and then, and then you can look to maybe do, you know, some other fancier stuff on top of that once you've got a, a good little base of strength. Yeah, for sure. There's, um, there's all different types of fancy exercises out there that, um, obviously social media is like a, it's gone, gone through the roof now. And I guess athletes are using that more <laughs> to see what like higher level guys are doing, but a lot of the higher level guys are doing just some insane things that, um, yeah, I, I'm, like obviously they're they're still very successful in what they in um, how they're performing, but at the same time, I feel like some of this some of the things are very like um, social media focused. Like they just posted to to get a ton of likes, um, as opposed to doing things that are actually going to 
benefit the athlete. So that's sort of my take on the the whole fancy exercise. Yeah. So much of, so much of it's just straight bullshit. Like, yeah, like it's, <laughs> I mean, you can go back and I mean, I've said it many times on the podcast and to anyone who reads my emails and stuff, it's, it's often a lot of the top athletes are there, not because of what they do, but in, or despite what they do. And you'll see it in every single sport, the top 0.00001% are there because they are genetic freaks and have just crazy talent. I have a theory that those, the top, top guys are just hyper responders to everything that they hit the gym doing whatever. They just build muscle like crazy. They lean the hyper responders and the information they can take in about their sport, how they can react and kind of see their environment, their sporting environment, and basically anticipate, like you look at John Jones, obviously one of the best, he can fuck off and do whatever and come back and still beat most people. Mm, and that's just that ability to be able to understand, understand the sport so well, that it doesn't matter what the hell they're doing outside outside of their sport they're going to make it regardless yeah yeah i think yeah a lot i think one thing that yeah people tend to sort of underestimate is definitely the genetic part of it like yeah some people that come in here i'm just uh i'm just amazed at like just their genetic build like they're just so explosive or like so strong um and they, they just built like to they just built for that you know yeah. so um yeah that's always like there's always a question of like yeah how much can you actually train the athletes to actually get to those kinds of really top elite levels as well. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've, we've covered quite a bit on this podcast. Thanks for coming on, Halston. But are you active anywhere on social media or anything where anyone can follow you? Yeah, so for me, I'm pretty active. Or, or I wouldn't say pretty active, but like I, I try to be active on um, Instagram. So, um my handle is coach underscore how, so you can fo follow me there. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much where I post the majority of my content. Um, so yeah, I post um, a lot of the a lot of my content. I tend to um, tailor it to athletes. I feel like coaches already know enough. I think athletes, a lot of athletes um, might not know some <laughs> optimal things. That's why I, I like focusing on them more. Um, so yeah, that's majority of my content. Is, purely focused on that, just educating athletes on um, some things that we're doing here at the gym. Uh, but I do sometimes post some more scientific stuff as well for the coaches, okay. especially about data. So yeah, that's where you can follow me. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it was a great to, great to, uh, nice. so, to be on the podcast as well. So um, appreciate you for inviting me on. No, thank, thanks for coming on. And anyone listening, make sure you go Go follow Halston on Instagram. Show him some love there. And I uh, appreciate you coming on. And uh, hopefully anyone listening took a lot out of this, obviously. I'm going to link up Halston's Instagram also in the description. So thanks, Halston. Really appreciate it. Thanks, James.